0: Chapter 8, Part 1 of Sovereignty of God. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kimberly Dion. Sovereignty of God by Arthur Pink. Chapter 8, Part 1 Sovereignty and Human Responsibility. SO THEN EVERY ONE OF US SHALL GIVE ACCOUNT OF HIMSELF TO GOD. ROMANS 14.12 In our last chapter we considered at some length the much debated and difficult question of the human will. We have shown that the will of the natural man is neither sovereign nor free, but instead a servant and slave. We have argued that a right conception of the sinner's will, its servitude, is essential to a just estimate of his depravity and ruin. The utter corruption and degradation of human nature is something which man hates to acknowledge, and which he will hotly and insistently deny until he is taught of God. Much. Very much of the unsound doctrine which we now hear on every hand is the direct and logical outcome of man's repudiation of God's expressed estimate of human depravity. Men are claiming that they are increased with goods and have need of nothing, and know not that they are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Revelation 3.17. They prate about the ascent of man and deny his fall. They put darkness for light and light for darkness. They boast of the free moral agency of man when, in fact, he is in bondage to sin and enslaved by Satan, taken captive by him at his will. 2 Timothy 2.26. But If the natural man is not a free moral agent, does it also follow that he is not accountable? Free moral agency is an expression of human invention, and, as we have said before, to talk of the freedom of the natural man is flatly to repudiate his spiritual ruin. Nowhere does Scripture speak of the freedom or moral ability of the sinner on the contrary it insists on his moral and spiritual inability this is admittedly the most difficult branch of our subject those who have ever devoted much study to this theme have uniformly recognized that the harmonizing of god's sovereignty with man's responsibility is the gordian knot of theology The main difficulty encountered is to define the relationship between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Many have summarily disposed of the difficulty by denying its existence. A certain class of theologians, in their anxiety to maintain man's responsibility, have magnified it beyond all due proportions until God's sovereignty, has been lost sight of, and, in not a few instances, flatly denied. Others have acknowledged that these scriptures present both the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man, but affirm that in our present finite condition, and with our limited knowledge, it is impossible to reconcile the two truths, though, it is the bounden duty of the believer to receive both. The present writer believes that it has been too readily assumed that the scriptures themselves do not reveal the several points which show the conciliation of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. While perhaps the word of God does not clear up all the mystery, and this is said with reserve, it does throw much light upon the problem and it seems to us more honouring to god and his word to prayerfully search the scriptures for the completer solution of the difficulty and even though others have thus far searched in vain that ought only to drive us more and more to our knees god has been pleased to reveal many things out of his word during the last century which were hidden from earlier students who then dare affirm that there is not much to be learned yet respecting our iniquity as we have said above our chief difficulty is to determine the meeting-point of god's sovereignty and man's responsibility to many it has seemed that for god to assert his sovereignty for him to put forth his power and exert a direct influence upon man, for him to do anything more than warn or invite, would be to interfere with man's freedom, destroy his responsibility, and reduce him to a machine. It is sad indeed to find one like the late Dr. Pearson, whose writings are generally so scriptural and helpful, saying, It is a tremendous thought that even God himself cannot control my moral frame or constrain my moral choice. He cannot prevent me defying and denying him, and would not exercise his power in such directions if he could, and could not if he would. A spiritual clinique. It is sadder still to discover that many other respected, AND LOVED BRETHREN ARE GIVING EXPRESSION TO THE SAME SENTIMENTS. SAD BECAUSE DIRECTLY AT VARIANCE WITH THE HOLY SCRIPTURES. IT IS OUR DESIRE TO FACE HONESTLY THE DIFFICULTIES INVOLVED AND TO EXAMINE THEM CAREFULLY IN WHAT LIGHT GOD HAS PLEASED TO GRANT US. THE CHIEF DIFFICULTIES MIGHT BE EXPRESSED THUS. FIRST, how is it possible for god to so bring his power to bear upon men that they are prevented from doing what they desire to do and impelled to do other things they do not desire to do and yet to preserve their responsibility second how can the sinner be held responsible for doing of what he is unable to do and how can he be justly condemned for not doing what he could not do? Third, how is it possible for God to decree that men shall commit certain sins, hold them responsible in the committal of them, and adjudge them guilty because they committed them? Fourth, how can the sinner be held responsible to receive Christ and be damned for rejecting him, when God had foreordained him to condemnation. We shall now deal with these several problems in the above order. May the Holy Spirit himself be our teacher, so that in his light we may see light. 1. How is it possible for God to so bring his power to bear upon men that they are prevented from doing what they desire to do, and impelled to do other things they do not desire to do and yet to preserve their responsibility it would seem that if god put forth his power and exerted a direct influence upon men their freedom would be interfered with it would appear that if god did anything more than warn and invite men their responsibility would be infringed upon we are told that god must not coerce man still less compel him or otherwise he would be reduced to a machine this sounds very plausible it appears to be good philosophy and based upon sound reasoning it has been almost universally accepted as an axiom in ethics nevertheless it is refuted by Scripture. Let us turn first to Genesis 20, verse 6. And God said unto him in a dream, Yea, I know that thou didst this in the integrity of thy heart, for I also withheld thee from sinning against me. Therefore suffered I thee not to touch her. It is argued, almost universally, that god must not interfere with man's liberty that he must not coerce or compel him lest he be reduced to a machine but the above scripture proves unmistakably proves that it is not impossible for god to exert his power upon man without destroying his responsibility here is a case where god did exert his power restrict man's freedom and prevent him from doing that which he otherwise would have done ere turning from this scripture let us note how it throws light upon the case of the first man would-be philosophers who sought to be wise above that which was written have argued that god could not have prevented adam's fall without reducing him to a mere automatron they tell us constantly that God must not coerce or compel his creatures, otherwise he would destroy their accountability. But the answer to all such philosophizing is that Scripture records a number of instances where we are expressly told God did prevent certain of his creatures from sinning both against himself and against his people, in view of which all men's reasonings are utterly worthless. If God could withhold Abimelech from sinning against him, then why was he unable to do the same with Adam? Should someone ask, Then why did not God do so? We might return the question by asking, Why did not God withhold Satan from falling? Or, Why did not God withhold the Kaiser from starting the war? The usual reply is, as we have said, God could not, without interfering with man's freedom, and reducing him to a machine. But the case of Abimelech proves conclusively that such a reply is untenable and erroneous. We might add wicked and blasphemous, for who are we to limit the Most High? How dare any finite creature take it upon him to say WHAT THE ALMIGHTY CAN AND CANNOT DO. SHOULD WE BE PRESSED FURTHER AS TO WHY GOD REFUSED TO EXERCISE HIS POWER AND PREVENT ADAM'S FALL, WE SHOULD SAY, BECAUSE ADAM'S FALL BETTER SERVED HIS OWN WISE AND BLESSED PURPOSE, AMONG OTHER THINGS. IT PROVIDED AN OPPORTUNITY TO DEMONSTRATE THAT WHERE SIN HAD ABOUNDED, GRACE COULD MUCH MORE ABOUND. BUT WE MIGHT ASK FURTHER, WHY DID GOD PLACE IN THE GARDEN THE TREE OF THE KNOWLEDGE OF GOOD AND EVIL WHEN HE FORESAW THAT MAN WOULD DISOBEY HIS PROHIBITION AND EAT OF IT? FOR, MARK, IT WAS GOD AND NOT SATAN WHO MADE THE TREE. SHOULD SOMEONE RESPOND, THEN IS GOD THE AUTHOR OF SIN? WE WOULD HAVE TO ASK IN TURN, WHAT IS MEANT BY AUTHOR? Plainly, it was God's will that sin should enter this world, otherwise it would not have entered, for nothing happens save as God has eternally decreed. Moreover, there was more than a bare permission, for God only permits that which he has purposed. But we leave now the origin of sin, insisting once more, however, that God could have withheld Adam from sinning, without destroying his responsibility. The case of Abimelech does not stand alone. Another illustration of the same principle is seen in the history of Balaam, already noticed in the last chapter, but concerning which a further word is in place. Balak, the Moabite, sent for this heathen prophet to curse Israel, a handsome reward was offered for his services, and a careful reading of Numbers 22-24 through 24 will show that Balaam was willing, yea, anxious, to accept Balak's offer, and thus sin against God and his people. But divine power withheld him. Mark his own admission. And Balaam said unto Balak, Lo, I am come unto thee have i now any power at all to say anything the word that god putteth in my mouth that shall i speak numbers twenty two thirty eight again after balak had remonstrated with balaam we read he answered and said must i not take heed to speak that which the lord hath put in my mouth behold i have received commandment to bless And he hath blessed, and I cannot reverse it. 23, 12, and 20. Surely these verses show us God's power and Balaam's powerlessness. Man's will frustrated and God's will performed. But was Balaam's freedom or responsibility destroyed? Certainly not, as we shall yet seek to show. One more illustration. As the fear of the Lord fell upon all the kingdoms of the lands that were round about Judah, so that they made no war against Jehoshaphat. Second Chronicles 1710. The implication here is clear. Had not the fear of the Lord fallen upon these kingdoms, they would have made war upon Judah. God's restraining power alone prevented them. Had their own will been allowed to act, war would have been the consequence. Thus we see that Scripture teaches that God withholds nations as well as individuals, and that when it pleaseth him to do so, he interposes and prevents war. Compare further Genesis 35.5 the question which now demands our consideration is how is it possible for god to withhold men from sinning and yet not to interfere with their liberty and responsibility a question which so many say is incapable of solution in our present finite condition this question causes us to ask in what does moral freedom real moral freedom consist? We answer, it is the being delivered from the bondage of sin. The more any soul is emancipated from the thraldom of sin, the more does he enter into a state of freedom. If the Son, therefore, shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. John 8.36 in the above instances god withheld abimelech balaam and the heathen kingdoms from sinning and therefore we affirm that he did not in any wise interfere with their real freedom the nearer a soul approximates to sinlessness the nearer does he approach to god's holiness scripture tells us that god cannot lie and that he cannot be tempted. But is he any the less free, because he cannot do that which is evil? Surely not. Then is it not evident that the more man is raised up to God, and the more he be withheld from sinning, the greater is his real freedom? A pertinent example setting forth the meeting-place of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, as it relates to the question of moral freedom, is found in connection with the giving to us of the holy scriptures. In the communication of his word, God was pleased to employ human instruments, and, in the using of them, he did not reduce them to mere mechanical amanuenses. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation, Greek of its own origination, for the prophecy came not at any time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the holy spirit, second Peter one twenty and twenty one Here we have man's responsibility and God's sovereignty placed in juxtaposition. These holy men were moved—Greek, born along, by the Holy Spirit. Yet was not their moral responsibility disturbed, nor their freedom impaired. God enlightened their minds, enkindled their hearts, revealed to them his truth, and so controlled them that error on their part was, by him, made impossible— as they communicated his mind and will to men but what was it that might have would have caused error had not god controlled as he did the instruments which he employed the answer is sin the sin which was in them but as we have seen the holding in check of sin the preventing of the exercise of the carnal mind in these holy men was not a destroying of their freedom, rather was it the inducting of them into real freedom. A final word should be added here concerning the nature of true liberty. There are three chief things concerning which men in general greatly err misery and happiness folly and wisdom, bondage and liberty. The world counts none miserable but the afflicted, and none happy but the prosperous, because they judge by the present ease of the flesh. Again, the world is pleased with a false show of wisdom, which is foolishness with God, neglecting that which makes wise unto salvation. As to liberty— men would be at their own disposal and live as they please they suppose the only true liberty is to be at the command and under the control of none above themselves and live according to their heart's desire but this is a thraldom and bondage of the worst kind true liberty is not the power to live as we please but to live as we ought hence the only one who has ever trod this earth since adam's fall that has enjoyed perfect freedom was the man christ jesus the holy servant of god whose meat it ever was to do the will of the father we now turn to consider the question two how can the sinner be held responsible for the doing of what he is unable to do And how can he be justly condemned for not doing what he could not do? As a creature, the natural man is responsible to love, obey, and serve God. As a sinner, he is responsible to repent and believe the gospel. But at the onset, we are confronted with the fact that natural man is unable to love and serve God. And that the sinner, of himself, cannot repent and believe. First, let us prove what we have just said. We begin by quoting and considering John 6 44. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. The heart of the natural man, every man, is so desperately wicked that if he is left to himself, he will never come to christ this statement would not be questioned if the full force of the words coming to christ were properly apprehended we shall therefore digress a little at this point to define and consider what is implied and involved in the words no man can come to me john 5:40 ye will not come to me that ye might have life. For the sinner to come to Christ that he might have life, is for him to realize the awful danger of his situation, is for him to see that the sword of divine justice is suspended over his head, is to awaken to the fact that there is but a step betwixt him and death, and that after death is the judgment and in consequence of this discovery is for him to be in real earnest to escape and in such earnestness that he shall flee from the wrath to come cry unto god for mercy and agonize to enter in at the strait gate to come to christ for life is for the sinner to feel and acknowledge that he is utterly destitute of any claim upon God's favor, is to see himself as without strength, lost, and undone, is to admit that he is deserving of nothing but eternal death, thus taking side with God against himself. It is for him to cast himself into the dust before God and humbly sue for divine mercy, to come to Christ for life is for the sinner to abandon his own righteousness and be ready to be made the righteousness of god in christ it is to disown his own wisdom and be guided by his it is to repudiate his own will and be ruled by his it is to unreservedly receive the lord jesus as his lord and saviour as his all in all such in part and in brief is what is implied and involved in coming to christ but is the sinner willing to take such an attitude before god no for in the first place he does not realize the danger of his situation and in consequence is not in real earnest after his escape instead men are for the most part at ease And apart from the operations of the Holy Spirit, whenever they are disturbed by the alarms of conscience or the dispensations of providence, they flee to any other refuge but Christ. In the second place, they will not acknowledge that all their righteousnesses are as filthy rags, but, like the Pharisee, will thank God they are not as the publican. And in the third place, They are not ready to receive Christ as their Lord and Savior, for they are unwilling to part with their idols. They had rather hazard their soul's eternal welfare than give them up. Hence we say that left to himself, the natural man is so depraved at heart that he cannot come to Christ. The words of our Lord quoted above by no means stand alone quite a number of scriptures set forth the moral and spiritual inability of the natural man in joshua 24:19 we read and joshua said unto the people ye cannot serve the lord for he is a holy god to the pharisees christ said why do ye not understand my speech even because ye cannot hear my word John 8.43 And again, The carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Romans 8.7 and 8. But now the question returns. How can God hold the sinner responsible for failing to do what he is unable to do. This necessitates a careful definition of terms, just what is meant by unable and cannot. Now let it be clearly understood that when we speak of the sinner's inability, we do not mean that if men desired to come to Christ, they lack the necessary power to carry out their desire. No, the fact is, that the sinner's inability or absence of power is itself due to lack of willingness to come to Christ, and this lack of willingness is the fruit of a depraved heart. It is of first importance that we distinguish between natural inability and moral and spiritual inability. For example, we read, But Ahijah could not see for his eyes were set by reason of his age. 1 Kings 14.4. And again, the men rode hard to bring it to the land, but they could not, for the sea wrought and was tempestuous against them. Jonah 1.13. In both of these passages, the words could not refer to their natural inability. But when we read And when his brethren saw that their father loved him, Joseph, more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. Genesis 37, 4. It is clearly moral inability that is in view. They did not lack the natural ability to speak peaceably unto him, for they were not dumb. Why then was it that they could not speak peaceably unto him? The answer is given in the same verse. It was because they hated him. Again, in 2 Peter 2.14, we read of a certain class of wicked men, having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin. Here again, it is moral inability that is in view. Why is it that these men, cannot cease from sin the answer is because their eyes were full of adultery so of romans eight eight they that are in the flesh cannot please god here is spiritual inability why is it that the natural man cannot please god because he is alienated from the life of god ephesians four eighteen no man can choose that from which his heart is averse o generation of vipers how can ye being evil speak good things matthew twelve thirty four no man can come to me except the father which hath sent me draw him john six forty four here again it is moral and spiritual inability which is before us why is it the sinner cannot come to Christ unless he is drawn? The answer is, because his wicked heart loves sin and hates Christ. We trust, we have made it clear, that these scriptures distinguish sharply between natural ability and moral and spiritual inability. Surely, all can see the difference between the blindness of Bartimaeus who was ardently desirous of receiving his sight, and the Pharisees, whose eyes were closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted. Matthew thirteen fifteen. But should it be said, The natural man could come to Christ if he wished to do so? We answer, ah but in that if lies the hinge of the whole matter the inability of the sinner consists of the want of moral power to wish and to will so as to actually perform what we have contended for above is of first importance upon the distinction between the sinner's natural ability and his moral and spiritual inability rests his responsibility. The depravity of the human heart does not destroy man's accountability to God, so far from this being the case, the very moral inability of the sinner only serves to increase his guilt. This is easily proven by a reference to the scriptures cited above. We read that Joseph's brethren— could not speak peaceably unto him and why it was because they hated him but was this moral inability of theirs any excuse surely not in this very moral inability consisted the greatness of their sin so of those concerning whom it is said they cannot cease from sin second 2 peter 2:14 2, and why because their eyes were full of adultery, but that only made their case worse. It was a real fact that they could not cease from sin, yet this did not excuse them, it only made their sin the greater. End of chapter 8, part 1